0: Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, my guest is the Chief Executive of the Royal Albert Hall. Craig Hassel took up the post in April 2017, running one of the world's most treasured music venues and one of our biggest landmarks. We check in during lockdown and find out why the REH is one of Paul's most favourite venues and why he's played there over 40 times in his career, from the Style Council to now. Let's get into it. Hi, Craig. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I mean, as anybody who's listened to this podcast will know, the Royal Albert Hall comes up a lot because it's one of my favourite series of gigs was back in 2010, The Wake Up The Nation, five nights in a row. This is such an amazing venue. So so what is it about this venue that made you want to take that job back in 2017?
1: Well, I came all the way from Australia to take this job, so I really <laughs> wanted it. What I like about the Royal Albert Hall, I mean, everyone has a Royal Albert Hall story. They've either seen it on television or they've been there or they've had a friend or a nan or a cousin who's been there. And it's, it's nickname, tongue in cheek, is the nation's village hall but it really is you know everyone is what i love about it is that it's really special if you're an artist performing on that stage or someone like paul weller or you're a member of the audience you feel really special but no one's excluded like it's not it's not posh it's not exclusive but it's really special and it has that weird juxtaposition of unique experiences and it's for everyone that's what i love about it
0: and we'll get into the kind of acoustics because i think artists love performing it because the sound is so Mm. good so special Um, oh it's brilliant but to kick things off, tell me when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller.
1: Well, when you asked me to do this podcast, I felt like a complete fraud because I'm, I've am i been a Paul Weller fan for decades and decades. So I was a university in Sydney and Style Council were huge. So I kind of grew up with Paul Weller through the Style Council. So all these years on to be asked to speak about someone like you know, An artist like that, you just think, well, this can't be happening. You know? So I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge fan, a huge fan.
0: <laughs> were you kind of getting sent stuff by people over here or was it more kind of like you were hearing stuff on the radio? How did you discover them out there?
1: Uh, well, it was a hit parade we used to have in those days. I don't think it happens anymore. <laughs> so they were huge in Australia. Um, they did too. I never saw them live though. I only heard them on the radio. We used to have these things Our plastic uh, called CDs. And you'd, what you do, you buy this thing, you put it in a machine called a CD player and it played music. I mean, they won't. The millennials they they won't understand what we we're talking about, Dan. But that's how I got my style council fixes through CDs.
0: They said they wouldn't scratch. These things are indestructible. What a load of old yeah, that was.
1: they <laughs> lied. Absolutely, <laughs> they, lies. they used to pour tomato sauce on TV ads, and it was rubbish. They they're they yeah, yeah. very fragile.
0: <laughs> yeah, very fragile indeed. How did you then kind of feel about the style council being no more, and Weller kind of coming back as a solo artist? I
1: suppose I I, I really um, he was. Well, in my mind, this is probably terribly controversial to say, but he was, he was the style counsel. So when, when he went solo, for me, it was just an evolution of his style. I mean, he's, such an amazing performer. I would say it improved because Style Council probably had a finite life to them. And so for him to sort of come out of that and become, you know, Paul Weller solo, well, that was a really, a really good thing and it has been for the world, actually.
0: And were there any particular songs that kind of stood out to you from the Style Council period that you just kind of went, oh my God, I love this and still and still do, presumably?
1: Gosh, no, well, it, was more, it was more albums because, I mean, again, in those days, you didn't download tracks, you've actually bought the CD. So that was the albums. I just would have them on and play them You'd play them on high rotation at parties, and you know friends would come over, and you'd play a CD. I mean, this doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> no. I sound like a really old man, you know. And you CD would come out, and friends would come over, and you you'd sit and you'd play it and listen to it with a glass of wine. And I'm sure for artists like you know Paul, they they create these CDs in a sequential order so that the songs are designed to fit after each other. Whereas now, I mean, I can go on for hours, but Spotify, whilst it's great, it's kind of ruined the album philosophy because you just pick out tracks here and there. And and also, I think in those days, the Star Council days, you know, they're real songwriters. So the way a song was constructed was designed for you to listen to the entire song in the context of the entire album. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you know, Spotify, if you don't get someone's attention in the first, I don't know, four seconds, you've lost them. So it's affected the way songwriters write songs you can't have a great intro or a, a theme that comes back again and again as a lot of style songs do it's just not a thing anymore because you can't afford to lose your audience so that's another hobby we haven't got time for that that's a whole other
0: podcast <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> no but that's so true because i think you're right if you talk about like confessions as an album um mm. there's so much of that that builds and flows into the next song and builds as a kind of um sequence and a, and a kind of structure that you're right if you're just kind of dipping into one one track off that because you may have heard that one played on the radio and then you're just, you know, you're just downloading it or hearing it on a playlist, for instance, you're right, that that whole experience is completely different, isn't it?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think also Style Council in the day, they were, you know, it was a quite, very gentle sound. But what they were saying was really revolutionary. You know, it was, a re- it's, it was a radical time in Britain and I was in Australia, but you got a sense of he was a... These people had stuff to say, they, but they, he didn't seem angry, but he was he was emphatic in what he was saying politically. And same so were the Smiths and so on. So his contemporaries were doing the same thing, but I just happened to like the music better. And so I heard the message more from what style counts were saying than what anyone else was saying. So yeah.
0: Did the messaging resonate the other side of the globe then? Because a lot of it, we've talked on this podcast about kind of, you know, Thatcherism and uh, the miners and rebelling against that kind of stuff. But presumably for you back home, it kind of felt like actually that some of these lyrics are kind of hitting home there too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally did. I mean, because I, I was also, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, university student. So I was, I was for the first time in my life, able to think for myself and be a bit independent and be a bit left wing. And, you know, so a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about, even though I didn't understand the context of the mining towns or Thatcher's Britain particularly, it did resonate because I was at the right age where you think, yeah, it's time to take a stand and we are got to be independent have our own thoughts. And so all of that absolutely resonated with me a lot. Formative years, Dan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is always the case. Now, the chief exec of the Royal Albert Hall, a very important position, obviously. How did you get the gig? Because presumably you weren't flying over for the interviews. So, so are you, is this kind of, I mean, now we're all used to the kind of Zoom interview, but back then that was less of a thing. How did that work?
1: Gosh, well, so, so, I had lived here previously. I used to run English National Ballet. I went back to Australia because I was asked to go and run the National Opera Company in Australia, which is a huge, it's the biggest arts company in the country, So I thought, well, oh, I have to go. So I left Britain, went back to Australia. And when I left for Australia, I thought, well, I will come back. I love I love London. I love the life over here in the UK. And I thought there's two jobs that I would want. I'd either want to run the Royal Opera House or the Royal Albert Hall. That's, you know, you got to have a dream. So three years later, you know, I got a tap on the shoulder and they invited me to apply for this job. I thought, oh, bloody hell, it's too soon. It's too soon. <laughs> I'm, it, it, my, my whole life plan was 10 years at the opera and then back to Britain. Anyway, you don't pass up. A chance like that. So the interview was very tricky because, of course, I was the other side of the world. So the first three interviews were over this kind of thing, like Zoom. Um, The last one, before I actually came over for the final interview, it was nine thirty on a Wednesday night, and I was in this disembodied video suite in the middle of downtown Sydney, and it was eight o'clock in the morning here, and there were eight trustees sitting around the table and I didn't know any of them and I could barely see their faces and I'm scrabbling down their names trying to say (laughs) the right name to the right person and you know it was oh my goodness it was like something out of a science fiction film anyway it obviously went well because I got the job so but yeah I came across and I hadn't quite got the job but I came across for the Christmas season there was Kylie Minogue's Christmas and there was Handel's Messiah and if there was a way to intoxicate me with the desire to take the job on it was that one week where I came out to sort of recce London and the Royal Albert Hall so so, yeah, luckily, I loved it. And luckily, they wanted me. So it all worked out. Again, it goes back to the, the Royal Albert Hall. You know, it's such an amazing place. It's very communal. You know, the shape is like an overnight Colosseum, So people feel really connected. It's something like a, like a concert, like, you know, a Port Weller concert or a carols concert. You can see everyone else singing and dancing and having a great time. So you feel part of the action. It's like, you know, I was saying before we started the podcast, the terrible thing with the COVID situation is there's no... We can't be communal. And you know, what we all want to do, what we crave is a communal. Activity, either being in a church or in a field at Plastonbury or at the Royal Albert Hall or the Royal Opera House, whatever it is, it's that communal sharing of a, a cultural experience. We just we crave it right now.
0: Absolutely, and that's come up a lot on the podcast as well. And I was watching the um, the Midsummer Night Music gig that Paul put on um, tail end last summer. I think it was like um, August September time. Played on Sunset and played some new tracks that are coming out this year as well. And as a fan, you kind of you were excited to watch something, but it felt like you were watching a tv show like whereas actually what you want to do is being amongst people bouncing in the mosh pit or singing with people side by side with their terrible voices you want to hear paul and they're singing over you whatever but that, that you miss that so much don't you
1: totally i remember i i try and go to as many shows as i can when we're allowed to at the hall and there was one it was teenage cancer trust actually kasabian were playing i don't really know much about them and i was in one of the boxes and was sitting with a friend and looking down and the whole of the flat thing was this massive mosh pit and it was sort of Young men of a certain age, you know, they're all smashed and they're throwing pints of beer in the air and they were having the best time. You thought, my God, it's like a sort of a sea of human civilization. They're all sort of rising and falling and forming circles and falling apart. And it was fantastic. And that's just one of the great things with live concerts, you know.
0: What was the first gig that you saw then when you came over and and outside of the carol stuff? I arrived. You couldn't make it up, but I
1: arrived for the week of Teenage Cancer Trust. And in fact, that week, the first concert was Ed Sheeran, and then I saw Paul Weller, and then I saw uh, The Who, and the support act for The Who was TBC, but on the night it was, I think it was Liam Gallagher solo. <laughs> I mean, you could it was like this sort of cavalcade of British talent all put on for me. But actually, he was there to raise money for Teenage Cancer Trust, which was great. I was blessed with my first week at the Royal Albert Hall. I, didn't, I had no jet lag. because I couldn't. I just couldn't stop
0: going to the concerts. It was amazing. Job done. I only need one yeah, week. Yeah. That was the best thing ever. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Never going to stop that. Um, and Teenage yeah. Cancer Trust is such an important um, thing for the Royal Albert Hall. And Paul has been involved since day one. So I think 2000, if I remember right, was the first gig. He was there for that. And obviously, Roger Daltrey organises the whole thing. Uh, so how does that come together? Because that's an annual event. There's a bit of comedy on one night but most of the time it's these kind of music legends like paul's stereophonics the who people like that, yeah. that he talks about how, how does that all come together because it's an incredible thing
1: it's unbelievable and, and you're right in fact and then the first time that paul sang with tct it was he sang a song with the who on that night as well which is pretty amazing apparently so um i wasn't i wasn't there that night it actually it all comes down to roger daltry you know roger is the he's like the artistic director of, of teenage cancer trust he has the most incredible contact as you can imagine if Roger Dalton taps on the shoulder and says, can you come and sing for TCT? Well, what are you going to say? Yes, of course you will. The roll call of artists that have been in that event over the years is just phenomenal. And they give their time. They they help fundraise. And I think also it's just the most amazing cause. I don't know if you've ever been to a concert, but when you go, you must find this, that, you know, you go along and the concert's amazing, but there's also the sort of call to action, like, you know, dig, yeah. dig deep, everyone, and so on and so on. And they'll always bring up. Someone who 's either you know survived having cancer or of or, or the parents of a child who hasn 't and or they 've told the story I mean you cannot get through that without bursting into tears it 's so emotional uh, you know, the stories of survival and the stories of struggling the stories of loss and and you just realize the the, the, the terrible impact of cancer on on very young people and the impact in, on whole communities and so much money is needed and, and we, we're just we 're so happy to, to host it. And it's such a shame. We we didn't have it last year and this year, not again. TCT did a lot of things throughout the year to raise money and I've been to a few of them. But this is... That the Royal Albert Hall is their big, that's their big week. It's so well supported that the gigs sell out almost immediately. And the ticket prices aren't that high because they want to make sure that a lot of people can come along in all different walks of life. So, you know, the fundraising on the night is really critical. And people are so generous. There's bucket collections and you text your phone and every which way to raise money. And they do a really great job. So, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah.
0: I think also it's that thing where, I mean, I would never say that you know what you're going to get from a Weller gig. You know most of the time it's going to be Paul and the band, whereas actually these kind of things, you just never know what kind of collaborations you're going to get and people kind of, you know, working with each other for the first totally. and, and quite often only time. And you get to see yeah. this, It's a bit like Hootenanny with Jules Holland, where you kind of just see this, this one-off collaboration between McCartney and whoever else. It's very special for that kind of thing too. Exactly.
1: And I think, I mean, apart from, I would say probably apart from Roger Daltrey, Paul Weller is the most well-known other personality of the whole of the TCT history. You know, he's been there so many times. And so when you see someone like Paul perform at TCT, he's not, well, he's not just a hard gun, obviously. He's there passionately because he believes in, in the cause. And so you'll see him give the most incredible concert. And and actually, speaking a bit against us, the, the production values are not as high as uh, you know, a Beyonce concert at the O2 because you've got a lot of artists in one night with different needs. So you can't be too tricksy with the production. Mm-hmm. So it all comes down to the artists. They so often you have an unplugged session or something. We had Take That two years ago. And yeah, Take That normally have all the bells and whistles yeah. and fireworks yeah. It was just the guys on stage having a bit of a goof around and doing their own choreography. And it was brilliant because you never see Artists like that, just kind of unplugged and having a great time, and yeah. and you know someone like Paul Weller with the guitar and his band behind him, just that is is sensational.
0: Uh, now I make it forty-one appearances from Paul at the Royal Albert Hall. I,
1: I don't want to pick you up with that, but actually, it's that's not actually quite true. Oh, look. <laughs> I've got my cheat sheet here from our archive. <laughs> so according to the according to the archive. Shall I tell you, shall i give you my fun facts?
0: Go on, please. According see. to
1: the archive of the Royal Albert Hall, Paul has done 46 performances since 1984. That's pretty amazing. That's Seven awesome. with the style council, 24 as a solo headliner since 92. 14 with Teenage Cancer Trust. There you go. He's done 14 wow. TCT since 2000. That's, that's almost every year since 2000. That's pretty amazing.
0: That's incredible. Speak. Yes, because I think I'd counted eight and, on the Teenage Cancer Trust. and I, or Maybe some yeah. of them are, he's not announced and he's just kind of rocking up because he loves it so much and stuff.
1: Actually, this is also interesting for your, for your Weller fans. In June 2010, there was an exhibition at the Hall, Lawrence Watson, the photographer, Box of Prints, which had a whole lot of photos of Paul's solo career for 25 years. So I don't know if that exhibition still exists. So Lawrence Watson, look out for that. A box of prints was the name of the exhibition.
0: Lawrence's photos with Paul are are kind of um, iconic and and beautiful. You're right. So this kicks off with... So the jam never played. We're kicking off in 1984, December 1984 with the Style Council. That's right. Now, one of the most famous gigs the Style Council had, and I don't know if you heard about this down under, was the July 1989 one. This is the album that got rejected by Polydor. So Mm -hmm. Modernism was the album. It's a big kind of house album, got rejected, eventually gets released 10 years later. Paul, I've seen pictures... Paul was in kind of day glow shorts, his kind of acid house surfer gear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) That
0: was the the era. I mean, it was his first live show in a year and a half. And depending on who you believe he was there, there was ripping up of the programs. There were people booing. How much of that's true? I don't know, but certainly it was the end, the end or the final days of the style council. But then he returned kind of as a solo artist, really early days, 1992, when it may or may not still been called the Paul Weller movement. Mm. So he loves this venue. What is it about that venue acoustically that, that kind of makes it so special for a, for an artist performing? Well, first of all, just performing there,
1: if you think about it, when if you're if you're the headliner of a band where you're actually physically standing, it's not Upstage, you're almost one third into the venue. Hmm. So there, the the audience is not like a it's not like the Palladium where the audience is all out there. The audience is up there, up there, here, above you, so that you're almost enveloped by the audience. So you feel like you're actually out in the audience. And when we do award ceremonies, like we we have the BAFTA awards and the Olivier awards and the Fashion awards, you know the feedback from the presenters and the award winners is I'm just in this audience. They're right around me, and so that coupled with the sound, which is also it also envelops you um it makes it just the connection to an audience and performer is absolutely entwined and in fact we just upgraded the sound system about two years ago with this d&b system and now we have speakers in all the boxes and there's directional speakers in the gallery in the circle so for uh, an artist like paul weller where the sound is so important and the lyrics are so important the voice is the hardest thing to amplify apparently because it's a really complex thing. Our voice is really, really complex. It's highs and lows and in between. So a system that's working in a music venue has to really be attuned to the human voice. So now when you see an event at the Royal Albert Hall, the lyrics of every song are crystal clear. And when they're important, like Paul Weller's lyrics, you need to be someone like the Royal Albert Hall because you get everything, you get the whole experience. So I'm sure for someone like Paul, it's just it's just gold. To perform a place like that. I would say that, wouldn't they? But I think it's true as well. Yeah. But
0: the other the other thing I was going to ask you is: there's this huge, big organ, like usually behind where the performers are, kind of you know uh, uh, the stage where the performers are. How many people get to play that? Is it still in working order? And if so, who's put that into their repertoire?
1: Ah, oh, Dan, that's a god. That's a brilliant question. Okay, first of all, it's a great organ. It's 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 um it's the second largest organ in the world, I think, and it's also. 150 years old this year because so is the Royal Albert Hall. It's one of the oldest organs in the world. And, and this, you'll love this, it has 9,999 pipes. <laughs> and, I, and I said, Hold so, on. Give, I said give to myself, num-
0: Give me that number again. It's
1: 9,999 pipes.
0: Why did you do ever would, build it, not
1: round it up? <laughs> I said, to the, We have an organ curator. I said, Michael, couldn't we just add one pipe <laughs> yeah. somewhere? He goes, He says, No, it's not that simple. It, 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 they, it, it's complicated. He said, I can't explain. It just it just has to be, and some of the pipes some of the pipes are like you know they're like as large as a forty four gallon drum they're massive and some of them are as small as my little finger so there are all these pipes and it's it's played occasionally and in fact Michael Cicchino, who's a film composer he wrote the music for Up and Star Trek and Star Wars and so on he's we've commissioned to write a piece for the organ for our one fiftieth. Oh, wow. So he does really super com- composition. So Michael's done it's really out there organ composition for this year, for our 150th. So you can't always play it. Like it's, it's pretty special to be able to play it. And sometimes people come in and they'll, we allow them to come in and practice during the day. And it's just amazing. The only thing <laughs> I'd say against the organ is my office is actually behind the organ. So we have the uh, graduations for Imperial College once a year. And so they come in in the morning, and they just tune the organ, which sounds lovely. Uh, and there are about nine graduations a day. And so they play out on the grand organ. So I hear the play out nine times a day <laughs> and let me tell you it's really really loud your desk is sort of shaking <laughs> it's like it's-
0: at least you know working from home is okay now it's, it works you, you can pick those yeah. days <laughs> yeah. well i'm
1: that kind of i miss the organ actually i miss the sound of the organ <laughs>
0: um, i mean that feels like a bit of a cop out to me though of your organ guy just going you don't need to know why it just is <laughs>
1: I think it's a bit condescending, actually. I, I think he thought, you know, he, this guy's so unmusical, I can't even explain to him. So I'll just let it go. He's a lovely man. I should, Michael Broadway, he's an absolute genius. The guy's yeah. an organ legend.
0: He's wonderful. <laughs> I'm not, not going to explain it to this Philistine. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't blame him. Now, I want to talk logistics because how does mm. it work, right? So Paul has a new album out in May. Let's pretend that this is a a, a world where we're out gigging this is a normal scenario right so paul has a new album out in may he's going out on the road what happens from kind of brief to concert so is he ringing you are you ringing him how does that work the quick answer is
1: it depends so it depends who you are so if you're someone like paul weller first of all you would come to the hall quite a lot so we'd be in touch so our programming guys will be in touch with a promoter and there's this whole chain of commands so we tend to deal with promoters. The promoters will hire the hall. But as you say, it's the Royal Albert Hall. So it's a seller's market. So there are more promoters that want to hire the hall than we have nights available. And we do some things ourselves like Christmas as well. So of the available nights, we tend to talk to a a range of promoters, but we have our kind of usual promoters who promote people like Paul Weller and so on. The promoter that promotes Paul Weller would say, and this, this conversation would happen not now, it happened about Uh, Oh, I don't know, 18 months ago, a long, long time ago, the record company would probably contact Paul's management company, who would then contact the promoter who normally tours Paul Weller, who would then contact us and we would then hold the dates because after the promoter has to organize the whole tour, not just the Royal Albert Hall. So it's a really complicated thing. So unless the whole tour is organized, our gig doesn't really happen. So sometimes there are one-offs, but usually it's part of a bigger tour, especially with the rock and pop act. So the Paul promoter has to you know ring all these venues and get all the dates sorted out and then make sure it suits the record company's release date I talk to paul's manager and his agent to make sure it suits him and then they work talk about the repertoire and the running times and the staging and so even when you've sorted out the tour i mean i'd, I'd love to bring you in more time and watch a get-in of a show you know
0: oh, i'd love to i'd love to say oh, it's it.
1: unbelievable yeah. i wouldn't i watched it was alfie bow getting in and of course alfie wasn't there it was eight o'clock in the morning we do 400 concerts a year so we're really really busy normally so you go in at eight o'clock and then th- there's phil Colin stuff being taken out and Alfie Bo's stuff is coming in and it's like this choreographed ballet of road cases and lights and rigs and, and men in hard hats running around. So Paul Weller's gear would come in and say eight o'clock in the morning, having been, I don't know, Bristol the night before or, or Berlin or whatever. It has to get in, they have to, I mean, luckily now the sound system is in-house. The sound, all this, the speakers are mostly all there. They're going to be tuned and programmed, but they're all there. But the lights are going to be rigged. They're got to set up the staging. That often there's a big screen, then the sound check and so. And then the artists wouldn't arrive until probably, I don't know, four in the afternoon maybe. So there's a lot of stuff, and that's one concert. And at the end of the night, Paul leaves, crowds have a great time, and they start the bump out at the end of that show. So it's yeah, the, from from go to woe is a really complicated process, relying on hundreds of people around the world all getting their stuff in order.
0: I was imagining a either a red phone in the office, which was like a, the bat phone essentially, and it was just Weller's direct straight through, or like the bat lights where you know essentially they're shining a light and there's a PW logo on the and it, and it, <laughs> it light, lights up the Royal Albert Hall, and you're like, hold on, Weller wants us. And that's obviously. Not Man, I wish
1: it, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should do that. Maybe it's, that's an easier way to do it, Dan. Why do not we bother with all these these spreadsheets and contracts and deals? I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right.
0: Much easier. Um, there's another Weller yeah. connection at the Royal Albert Hall, which is Sir Peter Blake. Obviously created the cover for Stanley Road, but also created this massive mural, which is 400 famous figures who have appeared on the stage. So we're talking people like Bob Dylan, Hendrix, Bowie, Churchill, Muhammad Ali, yeah, Einstein. And Mr. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, and Mr. Paul Weller. <laughs> Mr. Paul Weller is on there. And now you can see, yeah. this, obviously we can't visit at the moment, but you can see this virtually on the internet. And I, I looked the other day and it took me a while to find Weller, I have to say, that. I was like, he must be on it if it's like 40 plus appearances and there he is but tell me about this piece of artwork because it's kind of incredible and I guess I guess it's one of those things where people just want to spend time scanning it when they're at a gig
1: yeah I mean luckily it's at door 12 we did guided tours so the tours meet at door 12 and of course it's perfect because while they're waiting for the tour they're looking at you know now there's the Beatles and there's the Stones and there's Kylie Minogue and there's them there's the Dalai Lama and there's you know so it's (laughs) baby uh, spice (laughs) baby spice next to Dalai Lama exactly (laughs) so it's great and and Peter Blake I mean he's a legend i mean you think of all the album covers that that guy has done over his time and he's still a great friend of the royal albert hall in fact i should do a shameless plug for you can buy a limited edition of that peter blake uh montage that collage on our website log on robert hall.com and you can buy one if you like so it came back because peter blake had done a lot of work with artists who performed at the royal albert hall and if you think about artists in our industry you would think peter blake you might think julian opie you might think yoko ono but you know there aren't or ronnie wood i suppose mm. there aren't that many visual artists who are so linked to the music industry and peter blake is definitely one of them and um, he still comes he still comes to the hall he's quite infirm he's an old guy but he still comes along because i'm not that old i'm quite old but i was on a, a panel for a documentary prize the other day and one of the documentaries was about uh the mods and quadrophenia so i then put all the bits together but with paul weller and the mods and the whole visual imagery of the the mod movement and and that and I, I think this is right. You're talking about wrong. wrong. It sounds as though Paul Weller was responsible for basically keeping the mod movement going, that he was like the sort of had the legacy of the mods, you know, in his music and his style beyond that movement. So, I mean, in terms of British music, fashion, uh, social history, Paul Weller is the guy. I mean, he's a tremendously important figure in, you know, in, in our social history in the UK and Peter Blake I would say supports that along the way as well so yeah
0: now a couple of questions before you go this has been fabulous yeah. so um so you mentioned Teenage Cancer Trust and seeing Weller then that same year was the Jules Holland TV show as well at the Royal Albert Hall so later 25 and I know Jules and Paul kind of link up quite a lot as well so that was a really kind of special celebration of that show wasn't it
1: the it was 25th anniversary of Jules Holland and w- what I loved is that it was Jules idea to have it at the Royal Albert Hall and he's someone like Paul so he he has performed at the hall a lot of times and we were really touched that he wanted to do that event at the Royal Albert Hall. I mean, similarly, Ronnie Scott had their 50th birthday party at the Royal Albert Hall. So, you know, we just are the kind of go to place for these really important uh, moments. We had the Phantom of the Opera's 10th anniversary some years ago, where they recreated Phantom of the Opera with this amazing set and they had the chandelier crash on the stage and, and all sorts. So, what was great about the Jules Holland event was that he had people like Dizzy Rascal and Van Morrison and Katie Tunstall, two fighters, Gregory Porter. All these guys, you know, they're all again part of the DNA of the Royal Albert Hall. You know, during lockdown, we had a thing called Royal Albert Home, where we asked artists to do a little gig from their lounge room or whatever. And Katie Tunstall did a gig from her studio in LA because she loves the hall. It was, you know, it was very moving. There's someone artist like Katie just performing for just for us or, you know, online for us from LA. It was it was wonderful. So yeah, yeah I, I love I love the fact that so many artists like Paul Weller feel that this is their place you know it's it's their venue and that's and Eric Clapton's another one and we love that and like it's you know we just so pleased. And what we want now is we need to make sure that we are creating the pipeline for the next generation of these artists. So we do a thing called Albert Sessions, where we basically give the hall to a young band um, and they do a gig. and Because of social media, they can fill it with all their fans mm. at a cheap price. But it's a way to get a band on stage, somewhere like the Royal Albert Hall, and it's a, it's a good sort of kick in the ass for their career as well. And they usually will come back. So Texas were one of these bands some years ago. And they'll come back later when they're more and more famous and do another gig. And it's just a really lovely way to keep the, you know, maintain the love and keep it going for the next generation as well. So really, really important.
0: Now, you mentioned that kind of connection that bands and, and fans have with the venue and how special it is there in, Kens- in, in South Kensington. It's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where you come out the park and you look at this incredible building, this beautiful building. But COVID's been devastating to your line of work. And so, I mean, the entire music industry, to be fair, but people mm. won't necessarily realise that the Royal Albert Hall is a charity. And then to kind of keep it going and, you know, to safeguard the future. What do you say? 150th anniversary now. Yeah. It's massively yeah. important for us. You know, we've got to keep this venue, right?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we've been decimated, but so is the whole industry, not just in Britain, but across the world, you know, and, and we will trade our way out of this. You know, we, we don't have any government funding. As you say, we're, we're independent. We're a charity. And when we can perform, we can play to five and a half thousand people a night, but we've been closed since March last year. And not like it open till gosh, I don't know, April, May at the very earliest this year. And I mean, we obviously are trying to seek support from the public and so on. But I sh- it's worth pointing out that whilst we're suffering because of the industry we're in, you got to think about also all the freelancers that are out there, all the all the all the guitarists, the drummers, singers, crew makeup artists, um company managers, lighting companies, supply companies, you know, the companies that supply staging decks, mics, um, lights, all these companies, they've had no work for over a year and they are on their knees. These are small traders or solo business people, you know, solo artists. And it's really, really crippling. So I mean the message that we're saying to government all the time is yes, handouts are great and we'd love some if you can possibly find something for us. We haven't had any handouts as yet, but what we want most of all is to be able to open. If we can open, we can then give work to artists, to bands, to suppliers and to the industry that supports the industry and and vice versa. You know, we want to support the small guy, the small industries that, that rely on us. And we can't do that unless we're actually open. So we just you know, pray for that day.
0: I was talking with Andy Lewis on the podcast a few episodes back and talking about the fact that when this is over, there's going to be the biggest party the world's ever seen. And I definitely get that sense from everybody I've kind of talked to um, on the podcast and, and outside of that, with where once we're through this and people feel safe, Nikki Weller was talking about the fact that it's going to be like the kind of roaring 20s, where everybody's <laughs> just going to be like crazy, kind of like party, party, because you do feel that it's been so... Awful for the past year not being able to see. Yeah.
1: And that party, I'm telling you, when I talk to all our suppliers, there's going to be indoor pyros and gobos and uh, lasers and massive screens, and everyone's going to throw everything at it because, you know, we just miss that communal feeling of being in the same place, enjoying something together, you know. Yeah. It also is the dynamic. If you think when you go and see a gig, you are standing in the mosh pit or sitting in a seat, and of course, you talk to people beside you and you, They've got a beer, you've got a beer, you say, oh, I love this song. Wasn't that great? I oh, how about that guitarist, what the drummer? There's all that. You go to the bar and you talk to the person beside you. You know, the man will talk to someone in the loo. You know, it's it's a communal event. You can have the most amazing HD, 4D, ultra concert on television, but you're sitting in a chair at home with a few mates. It's not the same as that communal experience of a live gig, and that's what we we're just craving that, as you say.
0: I'm going to ask you to, a couple of final questions. So favourite act that you've seen at the Royal Albert Hall? Doesn't have to be Paul.
1: <laughs> Dan, you can't ask that. That's a terrible... That's like saying, what's my favourite book?
0: Or your favourite um, child, actually, <laughs> isn't it, thinking about it. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. Okay, honestly,
1: the first one that comes to mind, um, uh, it would be craft work, actually. Oh, cool. Because they just, I, again, I grew up with Kraftwerk, the mad German electronica. And and what I loved about it, there's a guy, one of my uh, marketing team, Jasper, I happened to have a spare seat in my box, you know. I got this box where I can entertain people. Jasper was there. I said, oh, Jasper, do you want to come sit in the box because I've got a spare seat? Oh, that'd be amazing. Anyway, and it was a 3D, you had, they had a 3D screen where they're playing, you know, She's a Model and Autobahn. And we are all wearing these 3D glasses and looked like a science fiction film. And at the end of the night, I said to Jasper, I said, Jasper, you're like 22. I'm 55. What what are you doing? How do you even know who this is? And he said, Craig, I'm telling you, these guys are the grandfathers of electronica. I mean, everything I know came from craft work. He so said, This is like, I'm worshiping at the altar. I thought, oh my God, I have no idea. So it was like a religious experience for me as a result of that.
0: <laughs> Love, that. Love that. Love that. Okay. Two final questions before you go. Yeah. Um, one is you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. Which one is it? It can be the jam, the style council or Weller solo. Ah) oh. do you want to hear hear the other question
1: (laughs) yes yes yes
0: Uh, so the other question is this podcast is called desperately seeking paul the ambition is for me to secure an interview with paul weller the interview that i never managed to get during my radio career what one question should i ask him or what topic should i cover
1: oh (laughs) okay can we do the second question first well that's, that's slightly easier Okay, the second question. Uh, so the second question, what you'd ask him is, what's the takeout legacy of the mod movement for Britain? Because I think there is one. There is one. So I would, I would say that. And song, I'd probably say Wildwood. I'd say Wildwood, and I'll tell you because it's on. I've got a, I've got a sort of like a personal playlist of just song. when I, I just amalgamate songs, and I'm, you know, I'm driving the car, but blah, blah, and that's on there. And so I probably hear Wildwood every. A month so it just sticks in my head so yeah i guess i'd say i'd say that one
0: it's a lovely song yeah, yeah. but i may Great. change
1: my mind in an hour but that, that's, that's my answer right now
0: that's the whole point. Everybody says the same thing. Um, Craig, this, <laughs> this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Good luck for the future. And let's hope you guys can open fairly soon because we all want to be rushing back to, to see live performance at your gaff. Oh,
1: thanks, Dan. I'll buy you a beer one night at the one, one of our bars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about many bars? Um, what about many bars? Yeah. And I'll see, I'll see if <laughs> thanks, I can track man. down an extra pipe for your organ.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. It's very kind. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much.
0: That was so brilliant. What an amazing gig and what an incredible venue. My thanks to Craig once again. Now, next up on the podcast, and I can't quite believe that I'm saying this either, we have a man known as the fifth member of the jam. So if Paul, Rick and Bruce were three and John Weller was known as the fourth, then Dennis Monday is labelled as number five, a man who played a key role in the band's chart success as product manager and A&R at Polydor, forming incredible relationships with the band and bridging what seemed to be a pretty difficult relationship with the label. We cross over to Italy to chat to Dennis and get an insider's view of working with Paul, the jam and the Style Council and what it was like working in the record business during that time. Subscribe now, leave a review. It all helps us to find new listeners to the show as well. You can also find us on all the social media at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or Paul Weller Fan Podcast on Instagram and now on Facebook. Get on it and help to spread the word. I'll see you next time.